Hello and welcome to episode three of the Double Helix History Podcast. Today we're going to be exploring the impact of DNA testing on ideas about identity, ethnicity and race. So throughout we're going to be hearing snippets from our focus groups and interviews with family historians from across the world, but we're also going to be hearing from a number of world-famous experts on uh, a number of the issues we're talking about. And I'm really excited about this mixture of having um, really quite important uh, thinkers in, these, in this field talking to us about these ideas, but also considering how it relates to ordinary experience and people's real kind of engagement with DNA uh, through their family history practice. What do you think the kind of key things that, w were, um, that came up when we talked to family historians around the world, Matt, about, about identity and race in relation to DNA? Well, I think the number one thing was there was quite a lot of scepticism about this idea of genetic ethnicity. Um, some, a certain amount of misunderstanding, a certain amount of questioning of what actually they are looking at when you get these results uh, turn up on a screen that seem quite scientific and solid, like here's a definite 15% Scandinavian, definitely 20% this. And yeah, not most people are sort of questioning of how they much they can rely on this. Absolutely, and yeah, I agree. Quite a lot of our, our um, in, uh, interviewees and participants, you know, very smart, sophisticated users of data and information, and they were quite scathing at times about the the ethnicity estimate. Um, seeing it so as a kind of um, just as a marketing tool, oftentimes, and that they kind of ignored that often. Um, mo most of them, though, did raise some of the concerns that our, our experts will raise, which is that it's not everyone that has this kind of um, level of education in the area. Many people are being kind of um, drawn into this area through kind of marketing, which seems to sell, um, a, you know, really quite a strong. Um, product in terms of you know what this will tell you about your ethnicity and where you're from and who you are and that kind of thing and it's all bound up with a question of um of, 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 of ethnicity and and race race to a certain extent background um being defined in that way so there's a certain amount of disquiet amongst the community we spoke with i thought it's, it's a strange thing because on the one hand even having worked on this project for about a year now and done a lot of reading around the different issues that there are with this kind of testing and the kind of claims being made I also kind of would love to, there's part of me that would really find it really compelling to be told <laughs> you are 20% Viking or you are 14% Irish, despite the fact I know uh, to a decent extent how um, flawed that might be as a concept. Absolutely, and it's, it's not just compelling, it's incredibly potent, isn't it? You know, the idea that you might be able to tell someone who they are and to define someone in that way, it's really, I mean, this is why the marketing is using this, because it's a real, it's a really strong narrative, it's a real strong way of selling. This, even though, you know, when we talk to experts, when we consider this from the point of view of, of geneticists or from the historians' point of view, um, you know, the, the basis for these these uh, suggestions is 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 um, complicated to say the <laughs> least, um, and the ethical issues associated with with um, with are, are very complicated, particularly outside of Europe. When one talks to the major companies about this, they are very careful about trying to educate uh, people who are using their product, but our experience is that that hasn't had as much of an effect as we might we might wish uh, and certainly I feel very strongly that there's a lot remaining for companies to do for um, schools and universities and social organizations to do to educate uh, communities about the impact of what DNA might mean to them in terms of their ethnicity or in terms of their community understanding a really good example of this is the 
the recent case of Elizabeth Warren, who's a senator um, from Massachusetts who's standing to be president of the United States. And um, Elizabeth Warren has been dogged for years by um, suggestions that she, she doesn't have um, Native American ancestry, which she claims. Um, and at the end of 2018, she took a, a very high profile um, ethnicity test, sorry, DNA test, which seemed to prove that she had at least 10% um, of ethnic affiliation with uh, other Native American groupings. Many, many, many Native American scholars and Native American communities got very, very upset with Elizabeth Warren for the fact that she was making political capital out of this, the fact that she was making a lot of um, kind of noise about this, and it was starting to sell the idea or present the idea that ethnicity was, uh, DNA and genetic ethnicity was um, the foundational um, issue in terms of your identity as Native American, and, what and that also Native American is a very widely um, uh, defined idea, um, tribal identity, indigenous identity. As many of these groups pointed out quite strongly, this is not all there is. In fact, there's many kind of examples of um, Native American communities resisting DNA and genetic evidence being used in terms of de uh, defining identities um, for just the reason that we talked about, that it's not as simple as that. And actually, if you're um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, from, uh, if you're First Nations, if you're Indigenous, if you're Native American, the, uh, the definitions of your identity are not purely genetic. In fact, genetics is oftentimes quite rejected by these, these communities as evidence um, in this kind of discussion. So Warren's intervention here is really interesting because she wants the kind of truth <laughs> because it <laughs> would be politically expedient for her to be able to say, I am Native American. Um, I do have roots with this particular um, tribe. I affiliate with these th this community um, because it will mean that she can um, claim a kind of political identity, therefore. Um, and it doesn't help her to her cause or her story that actually it's more complicated than that. And actually the, the, the very groups that she was seeking to kind of uh, claim affiliation with are, are quite careful and worried about any kind of defining, scientifically defining kind of identity. Yeah, the ethnicity measurements come up, and we've, we've tested, out of one of seven kids, we've tested six of the siblings, we've all got different ethnicity profiles. Yeah. My sister was 100% UK, or <laughs> uh, British, yeah, British Isles, effectively English. Um, one of my brothers had a high percentage, apparently, sort of Scottish-Irish. Um, some of us have got Polish, some of us have got Southern European, and we tested my mum's sister from mum's home I was living. She's got some stuff in common with some of us, and some Scandinavian, and like this. But we're all, we, we know for a fact that we're all siblings, and that she's a full aunt, not a half aunt, so she's definitely related from the family lines that we are. There's no other reason for the differences in ethnicity other than the random. Random inheritance of each other and parents each of you got what you got in common with each other and what you didn't. And ethnicity as a concept is so rubbery anyway that it would really tag into the five thousand of it anyway. Everybody's come from somewhere else, so just some people know and some people don't know. So well, some countries around that in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> ethnicity is, yeah. is there's know, a, there's an irony in that because if you look at the advertisements for particularly ancestry but for um, DNA companies, mm -hmm. that's the where do you come from? You know, what, what is yeah. your ethnicity? And yet, we know that it's very rubbery. And um, uh, to be honest, we—I don't even look at it. We—I mm. belong. There's six in my family, six siblings, and we all have um, 
We've all tested with Ancestry now. We have tested with other companies as well. Um, and, you know, it's crazy. The, in theory, we should be the same. <laughs> but there's all sorts of things. Um, there are all sorts of different ethnicities coming in. I know I'll have now get involved with your same phone. I have no idea where to start or whether to believe it or where to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, any advice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the close relationships, close matches I do, but as far as having 7% of something, mm. oh, well, very distant ones can be just inherited, but yeah. close ones are close ones, so mm. you know, it's one of those. Yeah. I just did it initially, again, some way I fell into doing ancestry, my husband said, oh, just do it, it was a gimmick, so it was an interesting gimmick, but it's become, the gimmick ethnicity part of it is just to me, the side thing, that they're using it for clarifying lines and I have on a couple and a couple of cousins I've met along the way have had big walls and actually solved them with the DNA. And I think a lot of people get ancestry tests or whatever because they think that's going to give them their family tree. Yeah. Yeah. They don't realise that all it is is another tool. Mm. Unless you've actually done some genealogical work and built up the basis of a tree, it's going to be nothing to you because you have nothing to compare your matches to. Unfortunately, that's the way ancestry sell it, though, don't yes, they? Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. sell it, you know, oh, look at these discoveries, bing, yeah. bing, up, and they sell it. My husband insisted on having his ancestry done rise, and I started to prepare him an ancestry tray, and then he went afterwards, oh, I really only want to know whether I was Celtic or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's the least reliable piece of information we're going to get it. That brings us back to the question we haven't done yet about the, how does DNA connect to the rest of the human race? Mm -hmm. I mean, for goodness sake, we're all connected. Some people try to hide it, I think, sometimes, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I've got, um, I've got one, one of my lines goes back to the Second Fleet, and my, one of my ancestors is a, in, um, came out in the Second Fleet in 1799. He goes down, he was charged with murdering a book written about it, The Blood on the Hawkesbury, um, and what had happened apparently an Aboriginal um, someone came in and killed some of the settlers, and then my ancestor and four or five others went out in retribution and right. killed a couple of Aboriginal boys who weren't the perpetrators, and the interesting the book has been made about it, um, which I have got, and there's a big court case all online where they admitted killing them and all that, and um, it was all there, but the judges couldn't decide what to do with them because 
much so it went back to England and they were pardoned. So he got away with it, just was pardoned, don't do it again, went back to his farm. So that was my, which I thought was terrible and horrible, but that was where my ancestors that I found first had, had um, connections with them. But, you know, I don't think anything in, but yeah, so not good from my point of view. I wasn't sort of very happy to find that out, but it was. I'm finding those kind of not skeletons really, but the kind of uh, mm. d difficult stories in your in your family's past. Yeah, I was sort of thought, wow. And I actually had um, my. I started to think a lot more about our impact on the Aboriginals and and their rights because of that. Because I thought I was, you know, many well, I'm not over it now, but I was horrified that my ancestors had done that, and I guess more horrified at the time that they got away with it because it was like not really considered a crime. And I thought, yeah. how Let's hear from Erin Vatat, a historian who has worked with Ancestry on a variety of their research projects. Ancestry DNA gave me maps and ethnicity profiles and common surnames for each of the groups that I was studying. And there are a lot of questions that these data could not answer, and most prominently, it could not help me to know how the people themselves identify, how they identify racially or ethnically or in terms of their own cultural background. Race and ethnicity are not genetic categories. They are categories invented by people in order to explain human differences and often to justify inequalities. And so it's not surprising that the ethnicity profiles not only revealed shared common ancestry, but also a history of mixture and movement that um, produces very complicated identities. And so one example really stands out. A group of people from North Carolina had ethnicity profiles that was predominantly Anglo, uh, but also had significant proportions of African ancestry and Native American ancestry. And their common surnames indicated that many of these people may have been um, part of a group of Native people in North Carolina called the Lumbee. Uh, but there is no way of knowing just from their genetic data whether they identified as Lumbee, whether they identified as Black or African American or as white. There are many cases in which the customer's own sense of themselves, their own knowledge of their family and group history could tell us a lot more than genetic data. This problem of using genetic data to basically define a cultural group was even more pronounced when dealing with groups where race or indigeneity was a factor. For example, most of the groups that had native ancestry, either in North America or in Polynesia, had significant and even dominant Anglo ancestry. But this mixing had been used historically as a way to dispossess these native people from their land and to force their assimilation. In the context of the United States, many native groups had to prove what was called a blood quantum, that they had enough so-called native blood to justify their sovereignty and their ownership of the land. 
And so telling a story about ethnic mixing and the mixing of cultures and races became fraught with political implications for some groups. And uh, to further complicate matters, some indigenous groups have resisted genetic testing or genome research as another mode of colonization. So in this case, they feel that the appropriation of genetic data by predominantly Western or white scientists um, is another form of dispossession. And so I really worried about how my own research, even though the customers who submitted their data did so voluntarily, um, I worried about how my research was complicit in that. Crystal Sosi, who is Dine Navajo, is a geneticist ethicist. As one of a growing number of Native American geneticists, Crystal is an advocate for genomic and data sovereignty and is currently working to establish a tribal nation um, biobank to protect tribal interests in genomic research. We caught up with Crystal over lunch at the DNA and History Conference in Manchester in January 2019. In terms of family history and DNA testing, um, based on like your talk and having chats with you, there's definitely um, a lot of considerations that perhaps haven't been fully addressed when it comes to Indigenous peoples. Exactly. Okay, so Indigenous peoples um, generally don't need to have their identities biologically reified because we define ourselves culturally and by our traditions um, and our oral histories. So because we have these other de definitions, we don't really need to engage in, in this technology. The problem is when non-Indigenous peoples seek this test to find something to corroborate a family story, uh, and they confuse culturally defining themselves as an identity now, pronoun, whatever group, with heritage and ancestry. Uh, just because you have an ancestor who is indigenous doesn't necessarily mean that that person has the rights of an indigenous person today. Um, and, and that's hugely problematic, especially when you have people, and I'm not saying all people do this, but there is enough of them <laughs> to cause natives as a whole to be wary of um, non-native people who try to, who believe that they could learn something about their indigenous heritage, equate it with indigenous identity, then try to seek tribal status and enroll so that they could get their perceived right to healthcare or education, which... And have you seen people actually try and do that on very slim to no bases? Um, <laughs> As I mentioned in my talk, I, I volunteered for the American Indian Association of Tennessee and uh, Tennessee is in the southeastern part of the U.S., and so a lot of the tribes were removed to Oklahoma further west. So you have a subset of uh, tribal people that escaped that type of persecution, or they were forcibly assimilated, and there's a lot of genetic admixture with African-Americans and also European-based individuals. Um, and so there's a, the story of the Cherokee grandmother, or the Cherokee princess, as we now jokingly referred to it in our native circles or and um, yes while I was a volunteer I would answer phone calls and one time I swear 
three times in the same day, separate people called asking if they could uh, spend a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks on one of these direct to consumer test kits that corroborates their story, shows that they're Indian, and if they could get a free house out of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and did you shout down the phone at them, or were you? <laughs> oh, I had to because I was the public face at that moment, acting as a representative of the organization. I couldn't scream down, but at least I could tell them, okay, as a genetic scholar, I could tell you what is incorrect about that statement. And also subtext, our healthcare may be free, so to speak, but it's crap. <laughs> I'm not sure if you really want access to it anyway. <laughs> Do you um, think that uh, the way in which companies like 23andMe, Ancestry, present the results of people's tests are helpful, accurate? No, it's totally <laughs> over-exaggerated. Uh, like, if you go to the homepage of Ancestry, uh, on the bottom portion of it, and it's been this way for years, say it's like, can I, what can I find out about my Native American uh, ancestry? And uh, the problem is, it's a, it's a huge problem that uh, these tests will give you a percentage of your heritage is blank Native American, right? And people look at that and go, oh, I am therefore 10% Native, right? Um, and they, 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 they biologically equate the two as if 10% of their person, their body is somehow from an, an indigenous background. Like, oh, like my thumb is, is, is must be, you know, Native American. Seriously, people have made statements about this, but what people don't realize is that these uh, tests are informed by only a few hundred thousand to maybe a couple million biomarkers out of a 3.2 billion um, base code genome. So it's like we're talking about one to two percent at best. And and then when you talk about where those inferences are coming from, they are drawn from Central and South American biomarkers um, of indigenous groups there, or Eastern Asian biomarkers in the case of 23andMe, um, and nobody knows the history about how those were um, unethically procured, mm -hmm. but um, an indigenous person from one side of the U.S. versus the other side will have entirely different genetic histories, and that's true to say that a U.S. native is going to have a different genetic history than somebody in a different part of the Americas. Yeah. Um, but you, you know that 23andMe and AncestryDNA.com are just playing into this because they're not actually telling the limitations of their technologies, unless it's like in the like the tiniest, tiny, tiniest tiny print. print that nobody reads or knows how to interpret mm -hmm. anyhow. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely not the main message. No, no, exactly. You talked as well about um, the ways in which companies like Ancestry, but also universities, research bodies, um, are keen to gather data, genetic data, on as many groups of people as possible, including indigenous groups, yes. and the particularly troublesome ways in which they go about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in the very, so, when we talk about ethics in, in biomedical research, for most people, that discussion ends 1970s to speak, and then then we had the Belmont Report, and that fixed everything. That is the narrative that is being taught to trainees, and that scientists actually believe. However, nobody knows about the Havasupai tribe, the case that occurred in the late 2000s. Nobody knows about 
the Human Genome Diversity Project and and that history as well, and how recent it is. Um, and um, there, part of this too is just a disconnect with uh, non-native ethic um, that is predominant in, in science and academia that is just doesn't match with how we view ourselves. So for instance, there's this uh, pervasive, there has been a, a pervasive notion of ownership of samples. So such that one researcher uh, gathered uh, DNA from the Nuchaknuk uh, tribe um, up in Alaska and uh, transported it uh, to University of Utah and then across into Oxford and when he died, uh, these institutions are clamoring for ownership. They, they are claiming ownership of these samples. Um, eventually, they got repatriated back to the community, but um, th this is a challenge. They had to fight to actually get that. Exactly. And now today, it's not so much, um, the samples themselves are not as worth as much as the actual genomic information itself. I thought it was really, well, one, one of the many interesting things that you talked about was um, the tension between the individual's sort of um, right or the individual's um, choice to take part in a project or to pay to have their DNA tested by a company um, and then, and you know, not perhaps be aware of what they're consenting to and what may happen to that data as opposed to the sort of the impact on the community and the rights of a community. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about, not just in terms of um, indigenous peoples, but more generally as a society, the way we think about data and consent, particularly genomic data, mm -hmm. and maybe, I don't know, what we should be working towards. So again, uh, the informed consent process was built more less on genomic data and information and samples and more on other types of samples that are not as invasive as genetic information. So because we can get gather so much more information from an individual, not just themselves, but also their family and who else they're related to or in small vulnerable populations, not just indigenous groups, but others that inferences can be made about a group as a whole based on one individual that now there's a there's a question of responsibility and uh, it almost in my mind should cause people to question the extent of individual agency when so much more information and harms can be perpetuated on a group as a whole uh, this is not disclosed uh, as a, in individual informed consents that if you're a member of a small vulnerable population um, results could be made about your group as a whole and in the case maybe even challenge your rights to access to resources that's not disclosed on an individual informed consent form and that you know if you're thinking about a, a researcher who's trying or not even a researcher because a lot of times this is tasked to uh, individuals who probably have to meet quotas or they are not as informed about the importance of having a fully informed process mm -hmm. that maybe they're just skipping lines on a form and just reading through it. Um, that, so this message is being lost to participants who are recruited into the studies. Um, mm -hmm. And it's hugely problematic. It's also hugely problematic when we talk about these third-party test sites where people can just upload their, their information, GEDmatch, and, um, you know, just... It's out there forever. It's out there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
Amazing. Thank you so much. So I think we've seen really clearly so far the potential for DNA to intervene often uh, quite directly in issues and contentions around race, around ethnicity, around identity. So as much as there are potential difficulties and potential negative impacts of this intervention, at the same time there are also numerous potentials and numerous positive impacts that DNA can have when we're talking about these ideas of heritage and identity and history. The next conversation that we're going to hear, I think really demonstrates uh, the, the dual nature, the positives and the negatives that DNA uh, and family history more widely can have on wider ideas of identity. I met up with Jean and Cheryl in a cafe in Ann Arbor, Michigan, just before Christmas. Jean and Cheryl are, among other heritage projects and family history projects, are the organizers of an African-American Family History Society in Washtenaw County, Michigan. And it's important, and I get up and I talk a lot about uh, right. our history. Yeah. Because they don't that. know. Right, and we had to start our own oh. African-American Genealogy Society in Washtenaw County. Yeah. Because the presentations that, that, that regular genealogy society, they're, the, the, you know, the, they talk about the Germans and the Polish ancestors, but they never talk about African-American genealogy, or even relate to, well, if you were doing this for African-Americans, it would be this way. They don't even, it, 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 it just isn't within their frame of reference. And so we started our own genealogy society mm -hmm. for that reason, because if we're going to help each other, you know, that, and that's sort of what the, the society is for, is to help yeah. each other and to teach each other. But if they never mention African-American, and if you have to be the one to say it, <laughs> How does this relate to us? How does it, you know, and they haven't given it a thought, and it's like, it makes it too hard. So, so I've been given presentations, yeah. and one of the things that I said in my last one, an introduction, when we do our genealogy, it's a little different, because we're recorded till 1870. Prior to that, we're a piece of furniture. Yeah, we're property. We're just property. Mm -hmm. So I told them that when they find that their ancestors own slaves, they need to talk about it mm -hmm. because that helps, it really helps in race relationships, yeah. it helps everything and you need to tell because we have a hard time, some of us have a hard time finding it. We're seasoned genealogists so we know how to do it, but for the most part, if you knew that your ancestors own slaves and you have a name, share it with other African American people or tell us like Roger told well, us. You right, had. right, because mm -hmm. if, if, you, if you talk about it, then the we, we pass the word on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So we, like, I, like I told Roger, I said, Alabama. So I know people that in Fred Hart Williams who are looking for ancestors Alabama. in Alabama. Mm -hmm. So hey, I can say, hey, let me give Roger your name or vice versa and see if there's a connection. Because that's what we're, people are looking to trace their ancestors back to the plantation. And then they can, if they've been dispersed, find them from there. Mm -hmm. You know, and. Otherwise, we're, we're lost mm -hmm. because we don't have that connection. Mm -hmm. Or the connections have been lost for so long. Like, I, 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 like I'm fortunate because my aunt, on my, on my mother's side, because all of her family went to Canada and they have immaculate records. I mean, they have kept the records. And because my family was there early, they've kept, we know the history. So I know my, my family's history on my mother's side. And on my father's side, they stayed in the same place. 
So they stayed in, in Fayetteville. And so that makes my, my history easy to do. But for other people, it's hard. It's, you know, looking for a needle in a haystack. And see, slavery broke up families. And what DNA is doing for us is putting them back together. And because we are, like like I said, my son-in-law and I share the same relatives. We didn't know that, you know? And so that's important for us to know who our ancestors and our relatives are. And it's like, wow, I just met, from the DNA search, I met uh, someone who I'm connected to, and we just clicked. We talked on the phone. She lived in Ipsy. She graduated the same year I did. And then she passed away, like this year. And so we had little time together. But the time that we spent on the phone and talking about our families and stuff that I didn't know, it was just, oh, just, I can't yeah, tell you how that felt. Yeah, 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 it's just You mentioned, wonderful. like, the idea of, you know, when you find, like, Roger, who found that he had um, ancestors who were slaveholders, and the idea of sort of, like, talking about it and trying to, you know, have those conversations. Is that is that something that you've done on other occasions already, or something you'd like to do? I just did it for them because when you don't know and you don't have, you don't know, then it it was something that I thought of that would bring about because we're not in that society. There we're not in fluid because there's no one there. So they had. So I just thought about that. And I'm I'm going. That's a good way to connect. The, the, and talk about race. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, because a lot of white people feel guilty about their ancestors owning slaves. That's the way it was, you know? You would be surprised at the number of African American people. They accept that. We accept it. Right, know? that's why I was, my heart was broken when I lost my beta match. When she yeah. took her, when she took her stuff out. Um, so the better match is when you've got four people who are direct descendants. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So do you have one as well that you had a I match? I had one and, and they took her off. They took her off too. Uh, as in like, so they the, just, one of the other people... One of the other people, right. Cut, 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 them, out. Right, they, they cut them off so you can't be... But it was Kentucky and I believe it was my... Uh, I believe it was my, uh, my grandmother. Yeah. So I'm thinking about DNA as a historical source. Because obviously there's, you can follow the paper records and take so much, but that, the beta matches only come up when you get the DNA. So DNA is like, you know, it's scientific fact. It's telling you that, you know, there is yep, definitely yep. a relationship here. Mm -hmm. But then there's people who are getting given a fact and then deciding, they don't I, don't want, want I don't want this exactly fact. Because yeah. I don't want this person in my family. Because it's, it, it, I think it's hard for white people to explain, maybe. Mm -hmm. Did they have black folks in there? And, and, and one of the, I was researching, because I said, I, I took a, I printed out the DNA before, printed out the names before she took us out. So, Sally. So I said, okay, let me find out what I can find about Sally. Well, Sally's actually on her tree had her mother's name, Esther Baker. I said, I, I never knew that was Jane King's mother. Because when she came to Canada, all of all that history was gone. It's one, you know, it's one thing when you know people were able to kind of bury these things, and it was very difficult to actually find those links. But surely, like the more people who do the DNA testing, the more that it's like it's just proven, mm -hmm. like no question, 
here's yeah. where you're related, here's that. Like, I mean, and we're talking like 150, 200 years ago yeah. when yeah. these right. things exactly. happen. Like, do you think DNA maybe, just by the fact it just is going to keep bringing mm -hmm. up more, maybe is going to make it, going to force people to actually address? I think so. I think so. Because people like me will, will, will be writing and saying, we're cousins, and this is how, <laughs> and this is how we're related. So put me back, put your data information back in. And then I think, too, like when I addressed uh, everybody at the Washington Genealogy Society, and I told them, when I was talking about the introduction to genealogy, I told them the difference between African-American genealogy and, and white genealogy. And I told them when, when we study slavery, that's important for you to share that with us. And, you know, we know it was it was hard and it was bitter and it was cruel, but you're not responsible for what your ancestors did. But this will help, and I believe after a while, people start accepting it that it's a science, and then um, that you know science really doesn't lie, and that you're you're more connected than you are. You know that things will get better, and you know you can use it as healing. Yeah, well, like Thomas Thomas Jefferson's family. They finally yes. have gotten to the place where they see themselves as family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They finally, yeah. after going through the denial and uh, all of the, we're going to sue, and all of the <laughs> ramifications of what that meant, to then be able to say, we're family. Yeah. It's all things out we're family. It's that, I mean, that, I mean this, I've gone after, I'm going to be teaching Sally Hemmings mm -hmm. and Thomas Jefferson oh, yeah. um, in like February. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But that's almost like, that was one of the first big DNA discoveries. Mm -hmm. right. um, but no, it's interesting how you say actually, as, mm -hmm. as an example to everyone else, mm -hmm. if it has actually, yeah. it's taken them exactly. 20 years. Yeah. Exactly, you know, so put me back, get back in the beta match. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. In our next podcast, we'll be exploring the phenomenon of family history more widely, specifically looking at skills, community and education. We'll be following that up with some talk around the wider public understanding of genetics and genetic genealogy, including some great interviews from our science event in January 2019 at the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester.